How would you like to improve your relationship? How would you like to respond differently in a way that facilitates mutuality and encourages connection? We look forward to addressing these issues together and welcome you to Ask Arlo, a program that seeks to help you identify negative patterns and respond in new ways that can promote a more positive relationship. Now, here is the host of Ask Arlo, Arlene Majorano. Hello, um, my name is Arlene Majorano, and I'm here with my guest, Ruella Frank, today, and we're going to talk about uh, how couples com- communicate through movement. And Ruella, Ruella will talk more about herself, but Ruella is, is a, an expert in somatic psychology, and she has done an enormous amount of work in this field and has just published a book, which we will talk about a little bit later. But uh, Ruella, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, not to add to your introduction. Well, I'm a Gestalt psychotherapist, and I've taught Gestalt theory and therapy for many, many years. Yeah. Right. As am I. And yeah. one of the wonderful things about Gestalt therapy, which will emerge as Ruella, I'm sure, talks about uh, the, the you know relational moves in therapy with couples, is that we believe very, very deeply in, the, in a concept of creative adjustment. So everything we do and have become to um, survive the trauma of our childhoods, whatever we've done, <laughs> we respect and um, value that. And then we also attempt to uh, introduce other ways that we can meet each other and meet the environment as we emerge into adulthood and we actually have more choices. So, yeah, so we're both Gestalt therapists and we're both very happy to have been part of that training and, and theory. So really you want to um, begin or add? Yeah, thank you. Um, so movement, I'm going to talk about movement and how we all move with each other, but movement has really not been well understood. Because when you think of movement, most people think moving from one place to another, change of positions, or I'm watching a bird from his starting point to getting to his end point. But movement is dynamic, it's relational, it's contextual. As I move, you're also feeling your experience in my movement, and you're moving as well, even though it may be very subtle. We are moving all the time in relation to the situation we live. Even when we're asleep, there's movement. Hmm. Aristotle called um, movement or animation, which is movement, he called it the soul. And it is our soul. And when we die, you see there's no movement. The soul has left. So we're really looking at the soul of experience when we look at movement. Um, and you interrupt me anytime you have a question or a thought. I'm, I'm happy to learn today from you and listen to you as, as always. So, and I'll okay, but, but please do interrupt. You know, I, I always like your interrupting. Okay. <laughs> um, I've looked at babies and uh, parents in the first year of life, especially. And my second book talks about that. I've looked at how the baby and the parent communicate with one another only through movement. Now there's a functional similarity to how the baby moves with the parent and the patient moves with the therapist or adult to adult, but I'm looking first 
as patient and therapist, because how patient therapist, baby parent make meaning is through movement. So movement, it's like relationships between individuals are based on these synergies of meaningful movement. And you can call them creative adjusting. How I creatively adjust with you has its basis is how I'm moving with you and the meaning, the creative spontaneous meaning I'm making for that movement. So now we know that. Yeah, because you, you talked about the mother and child. And one of the things that I think is fascinating that we don't pay attention to enough is that when do we learn to speak at around a year, right? We, we begin to have words or yeah, year, year, year and a half. Right. So, so before that, we don't have words. So all we have is movement, facial expression. The only way we connect is through movement. Words are not, uh, movement is not pre-verbal. Uh, words, words are post-kinetic. Uh-huh. Okay. Word, <laughs> first comes the basis of movement and then uh-huh. cognition and language, but everything's based on movement. Right. So we're getting really to the root of experience. Okay. So when, first I'll talk about when I look at couples, because we're all interested in how we communicate with each other. And we are talking all the time through movement. And we are feeling our movement. So Arlene, if you go like this, if you move your body side to side. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it. <laughs> you feel the movement of your hands. Can you feel the softness in it or the, what would you say? I'd say the rhythm and the flow. There's a flow. And the spontaneity, maybe. Okay, but I'm looking for qualities. Those are beautiful words. Qualities are like soft, hard. I see. Uh, light, heavy, squishy, calm. So soft, light. Um, yeah, I don't know. Calm. Beautiful, beautiful. Every time you move, you have a kinesthetic experience, the feel of your moving. So when I work with patients, couples, or individuals, or even children, I teach them how they feel themselves. Because when we grow up in a family where it doesn't see us clearly all the time, we're enough of the time attuned to us. What we do is hold our breath, hold our muscles tight. We restrict our moving. When we restrict our moving, we restrict the feeling of our moving. So I'm to introduce to my patients, to my friends, the feel of their movements. And this is key. So when I sit with a couple, I'm feeling myself. Do I feel a clench in my jaw as they go about their usual fighting with each other? Do I feel a heaviness in my heart? Do I find, feel a rising bubbliness as they feel and found each other? So this is how I'm diagnosing by movement. Now then... Can I tell you something that just happened to me today? Yeah. Tell me where this fits in. But I saw a little kid, maybe it was one years old, uh, trying to walk down the street. Uh, she had just, she was just learning to walk. So she was kind of hobbling and, you know. And I saw her and I like raised my hands in the air and I was like, yay, 
<laughs> and um, and the little kid saw me and it's like bright smile came across her face because she understood that she was being seen. And, and she yeah. understood, but this beautiful example, because when you felt her, whether you were aware of it or not, and then responded, right, she right. saw you respond and then had a feeling right. we move and we feel the, we see the other move and that's how we feel ourselves. So you went like this, she saw you and felt you and she smiled and then you saw her and felt something different. That's how the kinesthesia, this subjective experience goes back and forth based on movement. So now I'm looking at my couple. I'm looking at, and everything is a movement and everything I'm feeling how they move. I'm looking at, are they looking directly at one another or are they looking on the side? Do they see each other? Do they connect visually? Because that's also a movement. They're reaching with the eyes or are they looking aside? That's going to make different meanings. Um, do they hear each other? How do I know if they hear each other? Because one will have a response, a feeling based on what they heard. It's all about responsivity. I receive you and I respond. How do they receive and respond to the other? What's the time frame of that? If you tell me you're not really happy with something I'm doing, do I say, well, I'm not really happy with something you're doing? So how have I taken you in, felt you, and responded from my feeling, just like the conversations, the dialogue between you and the child, that movement dialogue? How do they take turns? Does one dominate and dominate? So words are pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. But I don't know if the person who's pushing out the words is really feeling the other that he, she, they are talking to. Can I ask you a question about the example you just gave? Because I think you said that if I say something, what did you say? That if I have a need or a, or a you didn't call it a criticism. But if I say something to my partner about what um, that you don't like, yeah, then they can. You said that they could either get defensive or be open to hearing me. So that's like a really important microsecond in any couple that can be repeated over and over again. Do I do I care? Do I am I curious about your how I've upset you and how do I express that? Or do I feel defensive and how do I express that? And also how do you visually express it, your need to me in a way that might create my openness or create my being closed? You know, it's very subtle how that can happen. It's very subtle and sometimes overt. It depends. But there's also about timing. You know, if you take in a breath before you exhale and every time you exhale, you're talking. So you have to, Take in what the person said and have a place for that before you then respond. It's a rhythm that is lacking in those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, may I go on? Sure, sure. That's clear, Arlene? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at how they reach for each other. Here was the example of the eyes reaching. Do they reach or not? Do they gesture close to their body or does it come out somewhat? I mean, I worked with a couple uh 
who she holds herself tight because she doesn't really trust him and he feels not trusted. So he doesn't open to her. She started crying. He got open and he said, I see you're sad. It's the first time his hand came forward. And I had him notice, did you feel your hand extend? Yes. Would you be willing to do that more and just leave it there and wait? Yes, he said. Could you, the wife, see his extended hand? Yes. What do you notice as you, as you see his extended hand? Then she said, I feel softness. I, you know, I had taught them how to feel. I feel softness. But I said, is there anything you want to do with this hand? And then she reached back. Oh, nice. Okay. So I noticed those movements. That's something different. Only when we do something different is there novelty and growth. The same as, same as doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But when there's something different, there's a change. So I look for those differences in gestures, postures. For instance, this particular woman, she will sit back in her chair. And when she feels she has to protect herself, she sits up as if the chair is not there to support her. She's holding herself up. So then I comment, what's it like for you right now when he said that? She says something. Can you notice the chair under you? It doesn't feel like it's here. So he's not here, nor is the chair. And, you know, one thing that fascinates me, and maybe you could speak to this a little, is how you learn that in a family, um, how you learn without even knowing that you're learning it, either to constrict, withhold, you know, tense up your feelings, or maybe just, you know, like blow them out and say whatever you want and move your hands around. You see what your family is doing and you know what you're allowed to do or you know what you're supposed to do. I think that's a beautiful comment because Heidegger, philosopher, phenomenologist, says we're thrown into the world. What he means by that is what we're tossed into a world of culture, family, politics, social. So this is how transgenerational trauma is passed down, sometimes through the words, but most often how the child is picked up, put down, held, fed, how the parent walks to them, walks away. We are feeling that history as it's conveyed through movement. Right. And how the child observes, right? How the parents relate to each other or how the parents respond to an emotional feeling, you know. Yeah, I just did. I was teaching intergenerational trauma and I had the group stand up and could they imagine how their mother's mother or mother's father or father's mother, or father's father, pick one, held their parent's hand. Mm-hmm. And they took a long time to do that, to feel how the parents might have been held. And then they learned something so much about how this was passed on to them. Mm-hmm. It's really quite amazing. amazing. Yeah. But it's in the fabric of the moving feeling experience. I, have, uh, I worked with someone 20, 30 years ago, whose parents live, whose mother lived through the Holocaust. And the pictures I saw of her with him was clutching, clutching, clutching. And he was like, (laughs) grew up like, stay away from me. So you see how that's passed on and how we live it in all the varied ways we live it and pass it on. It's always bi-directional. So 
Picking this up also, may I go on? You- sure, sure, sure. Okay. But I, I just, let me just add one thing. And we don't even know or have awareness necessarily that we've learned so much about what we're permitted to, to how we're permitted to feel and move. We don't uh, even know. Wait, but there are also people who do just the opposite. Go ahead. Oh, who do, who move yeah. They, they, they feel it. They know it. They feel the restriction. I'm going to be different. I'm ah, okay. one in my family. Right, right, right. We're the different one in your family. So, you know, <laughs> we're as different as we let ourselves be different. And then over time, this is my prejudice, but with the help of therapy, we see all the subtle ways we are still loyal to the mm-hmm. background. Because this is the only way I hold on to you is by attaching this part to me. Yeah. It's interesting though. You just said I'm very different from my family, but I would say I'm different politically. I'm different in terms of how I feel a responsibility to treating other people, but I'm not so sure I'm different in terms of um, the feeling that I'm allowed to be expressive. I'm allowed to move, oh, okay. allowed, you know, just what yeah. you're nonverbal. I might say different things nonverbally, <laughs> but I like, you know, the, the motion that I witnessed, maybe I found a different way to translate it verbally, but I think the motion is there. And the, uh, that's, that's beautiful. So some people can feel it and move in a different way and others aren't so crystal clear aware. So that's beautiful. And it also gives a little commercial, you should excuse me for this work that you do in therapy to be really aware of who's moving (laughs) he's moving me moving right Right. so that background is near near foreground yeah i'm so i'm looking at gesture we talked about looking at posture i'm looking at also how we distance from each other you know when you say something to me or if i'm the therapist now when do i pull back and when do i when am i working so hard to reach forward so what is that distance that I'm setting for the other. When I'm looking at couples, or now when you're thinking about this in in the podcast audiences, how are you distancing from your partner or your children or your parent? How are you bringing yourself closer? How and when? And how and when are you bringing yourself farther apart? For example, I was thinking about this this morning. Mothers can traumatize their child by longing for the wished for baby. I don't see the baby I, I have, I see the wished for baby. But babies can re-traumatize their, their parents by not being who the parent wants them to be. Mm-hmm. It's all inadvertent, but it's all bi-directional. Sure. Your partner, your partner may be wishing for you to be someone different, for you to have a different tone with them. And your feeling this re-traumatizes you. You know, I don't want to be different for you. I want you to accept me. So here's, here's where you don't see the person that is your partner. You see the person you wish for. And that happens often in relationships. And hopefully when you're in a long-term relationship, you fall more in love with the person who is, and you've given up for the wished for. 
but I think people need a lot of help with this. And you know, it's very subtle, Lorella, because if I want, if I wish for you to be the person that I want you to be, and you feel that I want you to accept me as I am, then there's like a, like that can go two ways. Like there's, I think a rigidity to that. You could also say, I, I really see how much you need me to be different and, you know, be curious about why. So it's like a, it's. Oh, I know. I I understand. Back and forth, back and forth. But how much of you is stuck you as, as partners in couples, how much of you is stuck in wishing the other person would be different? Right, right. And what would happen if the other person were different? What would happen with you? So you are longing to be different uh, if the other person will be different. If you'll be only would be different, I would be different in a way that I would prefer. And of course, we wish for our mother or father to be different with our spouse often. You know, there's a book, it's reminding me of what you're saying. I forgot who wrote it, but it's called In Search of the Lost Mother of Infancy. So we can be searching for that mother or that father. And then we can redu- we can duplicate that by, like you're saying, searching for our spouse yeah. or a partner to be different. And we, we repeat a cycle of searching for what we wish only wish could have been so so when as a therapist when i'm looking for movement and i do a movement experiment you never have to but if i do a movement experiment i can also refer back to that because people remember that so you remember what happened when you opened and extended your hand right so something different is happening now you remember what happened as you saw him open and you received, you, you responded and received him. So, you know, you remember what different happened. So when people are barking at each other, I don't try to break up the bark. I just want to say, well, you know, this is really familiar and you've done a good job fighting each other. And I often say, um, you're expert in this. Mm-hmm. Would you like to try another form of to become expert in just to see what happens and introduce a different experiment? But first, they have to know what this does for them. First, they have to know when I box you and fight you, I feel we're together. I don't know how this is often the case I find. I don't know how else to find you unless I'm fighting you. I don't know how else how to be with you unless I'm fighting you. So I want to see that as an achievement. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it's a protective device, but it helps me be with you because I don't know how to be vulnerable. I can't imagine what that would be like. And I also think sometimes that's the way somebody can find themselves. Like this is how I find myself by deep, you know, deeply and, and uh, you know, assertively and aggressively stating my position so I can get, you know, locked into needing to do that. But it's how I assert myself. It's what we call, did I cut you off? I didn't need to. Go ahead. It's, this is like a regular conversation, Sarlene. (laughs) It's what we call personality function in gestalt therapy. It's who I came to know, who I come to know I am. If I get up in the morning 
I see the room around. I know it's my bedroom. You know, sometimes when I used to travel to Europe to work, I get up in the morning and I have to take a moment. Where, where am I? What country is this? But personalities, all those many contacts, all those many connections you've made over your life that allow you to think you have an understanding, a knowing of who you are. Sometimes that knowing is so firm that what I try to privilege in psychotherapy is the feeling. So can you just stop for a moment, the fighting? I wonder if you feel open, closed here, heavy or light. Do you feel like a fist? If you can't, if you don't have a word for it, can you show me with your hand what it's like inside? Most everyone can do that. So something happens when you're fighting. It's familiar, but it feels like this. <laughs> so this is what your familiar feeling is inside you. Yeah. And what does that mean about you if you're like this? It means I'm strong. It means I won't let you touch me. Okay. Those are really interesting thoughts. If you really believe you won't be strong, what will you be? Weak. Okay, I have to fight you. I have to hold myself in like this or I'll be weak. Then is the risk. What do you see about the other person that makes you think you have to fight? Then they have to look. Can you look now? And then that can change everything because they're anticipating something that may not be. Right. That's familiar. Yeah. Not familiar. And then it reinforces, this is who I am. You know, it's a very spiritual concept to want to give up, to think about giving up who you are. Like Zen Koan, who are you don't know. Because we change, no kidding, incrementally in every moment. I've looked at many tapes of mothers and babies and some of them slow speed, you know, where you slow down and you see all the mini micro movements that are outstanding to see. And every time you move, you have a different feeling, all the different feelings that are changing as you move. So who are you? Don't know. Anytime you reflect, the moment's always passed anyway. Right, right. And who is the other person? I don't necessarily know either. I have a fixed gestalt about the other person. Yes, that's beautiful because if you look at the person and you don't know them, I think there's an ethical, this is Levinas, another philosopher, an ethical demand of the, from the other that you be with them, not thinking you can categorize them. Mm -hmm. That's a very sloppy way of my talking about Lebanon. Yes. But but not, not thematizing, not categorizing, just the demand to be with and never fully knowing. When we categorize, we think we fully know the other. Mm -hmm. And that's a mutual task in a couple, right, to attempt to not categorize. And if we can do that, then we've given each other an enormous gift. Yeah. Gift of seeing who each person is. Yes. In that moment. And, and you don't have to do it all the time because you're in life, pass me a sandwich, I'm on my way to the bank, where are you going? But in those moments of dialogue where we really need to be with the other, we want the capacity to do that. I don't, you know, sometimes... 
you know, I'm going to pass you over and forget you and do something else. But in the moment we're dialoguing about something that's necessary and crucial to our being with each other and going on being with each other, we need the capacity to be able to find ourselves with. Yeah. Right, right. So I'm just going to say also that's so simple and elegant and so hard to do. Well, why are we on this earth if we're not to do this? I mean, this is what we're on this earth to do. Right. And, you know, this is this earth needs this more now than ever. Yes. This is the only way the dawn of Aquarius will happen. This is a higher consciousness. Yeah. If only. So um, movement signatures. We all have different movement signatures. Part of that is environmental, part of that is genetic, that we come in the world with. Sometimes babies come in, they're long babies, they want to stretch when you hold them close. No, no, I don't want that, I want to stretch. If you have a mommy, daddy who holds you close, grandmother, whomever who holds you close, you may start pushing like this. The parent can misinterpret you and say, oh, you need to be held closer. Okay, think of that in your coupling. You're someone or your partner is someone who needs more space to feel safe and with you, and you need the closeness. Think of the difficulty you can have in that movement signature. Sure. You may have, now, let me just put a couple of examples out and then we'll talk. You may have a baby who's low intensity, um, not a lot of push in them, um, kind of gets excited slowly and then uh, diminishes excitement quickly because it's too much for them and um, doesn't reach really fully out, is more contained. And a mother who's high intensity with a lot of push, mother moves sagittal into the space a lot and really uh, is very um, abrupt in her movements. Now, somebody else could say that mother is pushy or aggressive. I prefer the language of phenomenology, which is abrupt, high intensity, and um, and strong. I'd rather just, because then I'm not categorizing her. I'm trying to understand her. I'm not saying the baby is weak or depressed. I'm saying the baby is low intensity, um, diminished excitement, soft, and uh, reaching within its own kinosphere, rather than the kinosphere is the reach space around you to go beyond the kinosphere is to, is what the mother does. The baby only goes this far, right? So here's a difficult, can be difficult. Now the baby is not going to know how to adjust, you know, to, to take on different qualities, but the mother is going to have to know in a tune. Yes. Yeah. As a therapist, if you come to me, with a high intensity, the same as the mother, some, I, I know this as I supervise, some therapists with their patients with like the mother are going to feel afraid and not want to make an intervention. What if, what if you get angry with me? So I'm not really adjusting myself with you. I'm afraid of you and I freeze. Rather than just feeling myself sitting on the chair 
Or, you know, in a couple, you're there, you're different. Right, right. You move in a different way than I do. Yeah, you I, No, I just think that's one of the things that I see that can happen a lot. It went, and it's very sad, obviously, when it happens with a baby. Like you, um, if you have a wish that, say, I have a wish that my partner is going to be emotional and express some, express their feelings and, and that when they can't, can't, not won't, but can't, if I see them as they don't love me, they're withholding, they're, you know, mean, um, then we get into a horrible dynamic of, of um, attack and blame. If I accept that this is how they are and they would have difficulty being what I require, would require or would desire them to be, then I can accept them as they are. And maybe I'll get, um, you know, not all of what I want, but, but a lot of what I want because I can accept what is. Whereas if I do the other thing, I get nothing. I get none of what I want because I'm beautiful. doing hacking. And it's sad when that happens with a child because let's let's, say, let's see how it works exactly your example with this high intensity mother, low intensity child. Sure. I'm wanting you to be a different way. I wanted you to reach for me. I want you to want I want to see you want me mm-hmm. because I'm being re-traumatized by your behavior. I'm being re-traumatized because nobody ever wanted me. I so hoped you would. I I I wanted a child, not a good reason to have a child, but wanted a child so I would be loved and you're not loving me. So it's not that this mother is doing anything wrong or bad. She's, she feels so desperate in her movements that she cannot, because of her unacknowledged early history, see how it's being passed through at this moment and the child isn't feeling loved. She cannot see and she will bypass the moments the child is with her. Mm-hmm. Same right. scenario. And I'm taking this, this is also in my book, this I'm taking this exactly from um, uh, research that, so the mother keeps pulling at the baby to be different. I won't go through the whole thing, but then the mother sits back and then the child looks up at the mother and the mother says, Oh, Danny, I see you. I see you looking at me. And the child comes up a little bit, starts to kick his feet. He's sitting in a high chair. I didn't say that. And then reaching out his hands. And then he gets excited. This baby, too much excitement registers quickly for him. When babies drop their heads, it's because the heart rate goes up and they want a little rest. And then the mother comes forward and says, Danny, Danny. So she didn't understand. She had him, but didn't understand and then got anxious. Sure. And then the baby probably cries, right? And it is so like. That baby doesn't, that baby didn't cry. That baby freezes at this point. Okay. But another baby didn't cry. That's right. That's what's happening. Sorry. That's what's happening. Yeah. Either way, the connection is broken. Yeah. There's no way that there's an attunement. Yeah. So I call that traumatic attaching. That's my word for it. And you can see it in your couple. The couple you beautifully discussed is like, I can't see you seeing me. I can't find you finding me. Now, when that child comes into therapy, comes into adulthood, and all our patients, we all grow up feeling like this because we have been missed sometime in our lives. It's 
developmental trauma we all have. That's just it. It's an existential dilemma that we need in order to learn how to survive. Mm-hmm. So with, and some people have more developmental trauma than others. Okay, so when this person comes into therapy, it's with the idea, uh, something's wrong with me. Right. So I need you as my partner to show me that something's not wrong with me. And at the beginning of our relationship, when it was hunky-dory, everything was acceptable. But now we're getting on and it's annoying how I brush my teeth (laughs) or how I chew my food or something is annoying. What I'm not giving you, something more serious. But then it comes up, something's wrong with me. I cannot feel that. You have to make me feel that something is not wrong with me. So I think that's how we get in these little glitches, little or big glitches. Yeah. Right. And I could either, if I'm your partner, either withdraw and sort of fester, or I could defend myself and then we could have a much more vocal fight. I'm never enough for you. All you do is criticize me. And then we could go off on a, on a tangent. Some of those withdrawings are really uh, anxious withdrawings and they're done as a very silent screw you. Mm-hmm. Right, right. They're very, pa- they're very. Sometimes pa- they can, they can be more like an underground push, I call it. So here they're pushing against each other. At least you can see it. The right. underground pushes. Right, right. It's really, <laughs> that was I, I prefer this, but yeah. Yeah, no, me too. Because at least it's, um, it's engaging, even if it. Yeah, you're Italian. I'm Jewish, but there's other forms <laughs> of Episcopalian from Plymouth Rock that may prefer this style. Yeah. I actually read an article once. I don't know if this is true. That is that when couples engage with, with anger, you know, like defensiveness, criticism, defensive, there's like a lot of energy there. So those couples tend to stay together longer. Whereas if, if you're a withdrawal type and the other person withdraws and you kind of go off into your stratospheres, those are the people who will tend to have affairs more because they're looking away. The other people, even if they're looking at you, at each other and finding fault with each other, they're still looking at each other and they're still um, connected, even if it doesn't. There's still a kind, there's still a passion. Right, right. Passion (laughs) is not so much passionate. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. doesn't feel positive, but it, there's an energy to it that, that is connected. Well, I want to say two things. I just want to write them down so I don't forget based on what you said. Um, I want to also look at the mother who has low intensity. Excitement doesn't build quickly, diminishes slowly. Her gestures are soft and gradual, and she has a baby like that. Mm. And so she really doesn't do it. What that baby needs is a little more of an energetic meeting, a little more of an energetic push to meet that baby. So the baby's repertoire can expand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what babies need is an expansive repertoire. That's what our psychotherapy patients need. And I know you know this is our expansive repertoire. Sometimes I can you know, when, when someone's depressed, I'm not going to go with them. And, oh, yeah, I see. I'm going to have more of an energetic uh, tone to my, to my speaking with them and more of a, a lift in my body and a moving forward. But 
um, if you're going, if somebody's high intensity anger, you know, and you're not meeting them here. You're also not backing mm-hmm. away from it. So you have to find the different degrees of freedom, which allow you to meet that person. So you know, not, interesting as you're talking, just let me tell you, I just, that what if I'm a high intensity baby and I need a lot of engagement? but I have a low intensity mom. Yeah, exactly. Mother can't help it. You know, that mother can't probably can't summon up the space in herself to be. That mother has that repertoire. We all have that repertoire. It's not been practiced. So if you have a high intensity, so if you have a high intensity baby, you have to find more of a higher intensity or you'll be lost and the baby will be lost. I've worked with many, but I'm so glad you brought that up because of course the mismatch can go in the other direction also. I can see how difficult that would be though, to just, to not just say whether it's the baby or a partner, uh, she or he is too much. All they, you know, they're, they're just too much. I can't stand. You could say that you could say something's wrong with me. I can't do anything for you. I don't know how to find you. You could go in many different directions. Either you're too much and the child beautifully said, Arlene, grows up thinking that he, she, they are too much. Or you could feel like something's wrong with me. I can't do anything for you. And the things that you do for the baby, you don't know what to do. I had a patient long ago that said, um, showed a picture of her when she was six months old, pushing up on the floor and the mother had her hand just resting on her butt. And she said, I'm reminded my mother just used to pat me. Uh-huh. Oh, or okay. I, I had a, a mother and a baby who. Um, but that were, was okay. That was good. Just pat no, me. No, no. The mother that's was she oh, thank you. down. When she didn't know what to do, that's what she would do. She'd pat me. She wouldn't know what else to do. Uh-huh. Okay. I had a mother and a baby come. And the mother, every once in a while, very often, would kiss the baby. Kiss the baby kiss the baby. And I said, I see how often you kiss that baby. She said, yes. I said, what are you thinking? What are you saying to the baby when you kiss her? And she said, I don't know what to do. Hmm. Interesting. Not, I love you. Because that, no, because that kiss is performative. Mm -hmm. Kissing, hugging can be performative. Right. Right. If it's not, if it's not interrelational, if the baby, if there's not some met this some is there's not a meaning fire going back and forth that's microscopic but that where you know the baby wants to kiss where the baby reaches out and you reach out back and it's I, not a meaningful movement it's not a synergy of meaningful movement right right and that's what relationships are relationships between individuals synergies of meaningful movement right. how i am conversing with you now back and forth you see how we're moving with each other. Right. That moving has an affect, has a feeling. And then we speak from that feeling. Right. I mean, it's kind of um, an interesting thing how I think how quickly that can get off track, right? It, it, like it just in a microsecond, if, if I read something in a way that makes me feel I'm being criticized or I'm not being met. And then I respond in a certain way, like it very quickly can go off track. Well, now we're talking about texts and emails. Mm-hmm. You read something the way it's written in a text, you go to the person, 
and it's total anticipation of the sound of the voice or the spacing between the sentence, or if someone puts something in caps, capital letters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's no other there. And that's what happens to me with um, social media. You know, it's all a fantasy of who the other is. Right, right. It is interesting how that even, that's even more dangerous than misreading. <laughs> At least with physical communication, there's more of a chance that you could. At least there's another there to misread. Yeah, yeah. Not a, an idea, of, not a categorization of that other that you're going to then categorize. Right. So I want to say one more thing in the couple of minutes we have about, if I can remember, spatial relational dialogue. Because it's all about the space relations between us. So how am I shaping space so that we're closer or we're farther away? And it's not just a physicality. It's if I use a tone of voice like this, some people, it will push them so far away because they think, oh, it's my mother and she was always ingenuous to me. Or if I use a tone that's slightly energetic, that people will see is, oh my God, this is your really Ruella, you're too high intensity and you seem really stern now. And so those spatial dynamics are created all the time by the words we use. If I say to you, um, Arlene, I'm, it's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Or if I say, Arlene, I didn't like the way this hour went. So can you see how the language we use also indicates the distance of, and it's only through a distance can we find the closeness, that we are two separate individuals, that when I say, I just had such a good time being with you this afternoon, from that distance, we make the closeness. Right. Why, why is that distant though? I had such a good time being with you. That sounds like close. No, no, no. Only that we are distant. We, ah. because it all begins in distance. I think. And then I reach for you. A reach is always to measure the distance between us. So my words are reaching. I had such a good time being with you. <laughs> and I thank you for saying that. I had such a good time being with you. <laughs> so we're reaching for each other right. and distance gets shorter. And we can even make it longer by, um, I know you have to go and I won't speak with you for several weeks. I know that. And that creates a distance. It's not that distance is bad. It's part of our relationship. I don't, you know, people can't be like this all the time, which is why they fight or withdraw, you know? So it's a rhythm. To me, I'm I'm so happy to have been with you today. And if I, depending upon who I am, I could say, yeah. oh, you're just saying that you don't really mean it. And then we could, so even though you've reached out, if I don't yes. reach, yeah. So it's interesting yeah. how that could be. But I just want to say the spatial relational dialogue happens all the time. And you who are listening in terms of your own partners with children, with couples, with whomever, dogs, yeah. <laughs> you know, You're always, you're coy in the pool. You're always setting this relational distance. We are always measuring how close someone is or how far someone is. 
So in the last four minutes, how many minutes do we have, honey? We only have a few. So why don't you want to talk about your book a little bit before we, I think you said 554. So, okay. So my book is called, I have three books, Body of Awareness, 2001. That's quite an old book, but it's still out and about. The first year of your life is the second book. That's about babies and parents and how we become adults. This book, The Roots of Experience in Psychotherapy. This is my favorite book. You can find it on Amazon or Rutledge Press. It's out August 5th. Oh, and, oh. Um, it is it is really blends together phenomenology, which is really a philosophy. And psychology is a is practical philosophy. So the book is practical philosophy loaded with case studies. And oh, I love that. I love that. I can't wait. I've ordered it. It's coming. Right? I know, because I was going to get one for you at the book party. Well, whatever. Order I, ordered it is fine. Or I ordered two for Gap. So oh, that's great. Okay. Um, it was, but really, this was such fun. Yes, 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 yes. And I feel I learned so much. I always learn so much from you. Uh, and I, you too. And we have these great conversations all the time, but never this conversation. <laughs> all right. So we say goodbye to all the people we haven't seen at a distance and hope this conversation has brought you somewhat closer to us and to the interest of the material and to yourselves. Yes. Okay. Yes. And um, I can't wait to see all those people again in person. I mean, talk about the power of relational connection and how we've all been deprived of that in a certain way during COVID, right? Okay, so then shall we sign off? Okay, so thank you again. And thank you. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Ask Arlo. Arlene Majorano has another episode of the podcast coming soon. So keep checking back on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And be sure to visit askarlo.com to ask questions and to find out more about the show. Until our next show, keep finding new ways to renew the relationships in your life.